Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks. Today we're going to be talking about my own wildlife garden. I've lived in this house now for about three and a half years and it has matured wonderfully. And I'm going to share with you all the hints, tips and things that I've done to encourage wildlife into my own back garden. I find that gardening is a fantastic way to relieve stress. It's great for mental health. And it also teaches the art of patience. I think all too often in this modern world, it's instant gratification. You post a photo on Facebook, you instantly get X amount of likes. You go to a restaurant, you want your food straight away. The lovely thing with gardening is the promise of something later down the line. It's delayed gratification. You know that when you plant those bulbs, you're not going to see them for four or five months. But when they do come up, they're going to look spectacular. Likewise, with a wildflower meadow, you sow those seeds in the autumn. You've got no idea if it's going to work or not, but if it does work, there's no better feeling. So I absolutely love wildlife gardening in that respect. Now, if you can support the podcast, you can do so via buymeacoffee.com. Now, I realise I haven't actually read any of the comments of people who have donated. So I'm long overdue a couple of these, so I'm just going to read out some. Uh, Take to the Hills puts, love the podcast, can't wait for next season. Thank you very much, we're already there, mate. Uh, Jan Watterwitz, really sorry, Jan, because I know you've donated a few times, I've just butchered your last name. He's put, thanks for these great podcasts, Jack. Also, Britain's Hidden Fishes was incredible. Loved every second of it, well done. I've not really talked a lot about Britain's Hidden Fishes, but some of you may know that I crowdfunded a film called Britain's Hidden Fishes, Jeremy Wade narrated it. I might actually even do a pod about the whole story of that because it is pretty mental. So maybe down the line, if people are interested, I can talk a little bit about that. But thanks, Jan. I think we did meet at the premiere as well. So thanks for that, buddy. Uh, Michael Paul has put, love the podcast, Jack. Keep it up. Thanks, Michael. Very nice of you. Uh, Roz bought a coffee and someone bought a coffee. So you can donate anonymously. as well. If you don't want your name written out or you don't want to leave a message, you can do that. I've got a back catalogue of others. So if you have uh, left a message, I will get around to it. All these first lot of podcasts are pre-recorded. They're not live. What I normally do is I edit the podcast and then I record the intro just before it goes out so that I can uh, read out Buy Me A Coffee Bits. So after next week's episode, they'll be live again. So if you donate the week after the podcast comes out, your message will be in the next podcast. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if that makes sense. Hopefully that does. Anyway, let's get into the meat and potatoes of today, or should that be the daffodils and the hedgehogs. I'm just rambling now, aren't I? Hope you enjoy the pod. Here it is. Hello, how are we all doing? Well, today you find me sat in my kitchen overlooking my back garden. And I'm going to be talking about garden wildlife, or wildlife gardening to be more precise, and give you some hints, tips and ideas as I take you for a virtual tour of my own back garden, what I've done to encourage wildlife, what plants I've put in, some of the things you might expect, 
some things you might not expect as I walk you through what I've done over the past three years. So currently it is September. It's absolutely pissed it down this morning, but the sun has come out. It's a little bit windy, and that's why I've decided to do this from the relative comfort of my kitchen rather than go out into the garden. Now, this time of year, September, everything's starting to slow down a little bit. Although we've had a very warm September, to be fair, the wildlife gardening can chill out a little bit, if you like. What have I done in mind? It's not a big garden, if I'm honest with you, or I don't think it's a big garden anyway. If I were to guess, I would say it's something like six by seven meters square, roughly, something like that. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that I bang on about my garden pretty regularly. And when I moved in, my garden was essentially just a plain lawn and grass. There was very little in there. But actually, that's a good thing. Or it's a good thing if you want to start to create your own stamp on things. Because if you move into a garden that's already got lots of bushes and a pond, then I'd be reluctant to remove those because that's going to be habitat for existing wildlife. Whereas because my garden was basically a green desert, there wasn't a lot living in it. In fact, the only animals of note were lesser stag beetles, which I occasionally find in my log pile, which I'll come back onto log piles later. And there was a great big buddleia bush, which people can get very militant about having non-native plants or non, uh, non-local plants in their garden. But if it's fit for purpose, I don't mind. Your garden is not the Serengeti. It's not a huge heathland or a woodland or, or a meadow, as many of us try to recreate. It's something man-made. I don't think there's anything wrong with having plants that bring you joy if they're colourful or if they fit a better niche for wildlife in the area and buddleia arguably is a fantastic nectar producing plant for butterflies it's also known as butterfly bush moths like it at night so many invertebrates really like buddleia so i don't see the problem with having it in an enclosed urban garden so i left the buddleia bush in there because it's already pretty big i didn't want to remove it and in fact to the left of my buddleia bush i've also planted three or four other varieties so I've got a, a really beautiful purple uh, buddleia right at the bottom. And my large buddleia bush is a kind of soft pink, which is the one that we're used to. Next to my buddleia, I've also got a, I think it's called a Pythagora. I might be saying that wrong, but it's got lots of lovely red berries on it at the minute, which later in the year will be really valuable to things like wood pigeons and blackbirds. And if I'm very lucky, waxwing may very well come onto that. I have actually got a small rowan tree in my garden as well with the ulterior motive of potentially getting wax wings one day on it. You never know. I'll start with the perimeter of my garden. So it is all bushes around it. I've got a fence, but I've got bushes. So on the right hand side is my buddleia bushes. Then <laughs> I knew the dogs would pop up at some point in this podcast. Okay. I think they're quiet. If they carry on, I'll go and beat them with an inch of their lives and see if that shuts them up. I'm joking, I'm joking. I wouldn't do that. They would definitely beat me up. They're sausage dogs. In the right-hand corner of my garden, I've got one of my raised ponds. And I'll come on to ponds a little bit later in their own little piece. But on the back of my raised pond, I've put native hedging in. So I've got blackthorn, I've got hawthorn, I've got holly... I did try and grow gorse, it didn't take, but I've just got a selection of native hedgerow. And the idea is that I want that to uh, 
uh, grow up and cover the fence. So essentially I'll then have a sort of mini hedge along my fence for things like sparrows and birds to go into because my garden is pretty bird negative. I don't have many bird species. If you listen to the Big Garden Birdwatch podcast that we did a few episodes ago, you'll know that I don't get a lot. So I, I do have a, a bird table. That's about all I do for birds in my garden. Apart from wood pigeons, I don't get a lot of regular bird life um, in my garden. Now, on the other side of my fence, I've got trellises with climbers. I've got clematis, I've got climbing rose, I've got honeysuckle, which is a lovely native climber. And the idea is that that's going to cover the trellises eventually. They, they're already spreading pretty well, but they've not covered it completely. But I'm hoping that will create a bit of a green corridor along my fence eventually for lots of nectar-loving plants. Being where I live, I've also got um, an old coal shed in my back garden. So I've got an ivy growing up that which I planted. I love ivy. Ivy is an underloved plant. Not only does it cover dead space, so it keeps my shed nice and cool as well, keeping the sun out and insulating it in the winter as well. Lots of animals live within the ivy. There are animals that eat the leaves. There are lots of animals that eat the berries. A lot of birds eat the berries. Ivy uh, has its berries very late in the year. So that means that species can get a bit of a feed when other things are not uh, in berry. And they flower later in the year as well. So wasps and other different species. So ivy all round is a great plant. And you should definitely consider having some ivy in your garden. The other side of my coal shed is climbing rose. That's where my compost heap is. Um, and then I've got a little bit of a patio, uh, which is the only kind of dead space in the garden, really. When we come inwards, I've got a bit of a lawn. The lawn is there for the for the dogs mostly. I, I'm not a big fan of lawns. I, I like to use all the space that's available to me. But the dogs need somewhere to have a run around and, uh, and go to the toilet. So basically, my lawn is essentially just a giant dog toilet. Um, I've tried putting wildflowers into it, directly into a lawn. I've put clover in the past. I've, I've directly seeded daisies and uh, fox and cubs, lots and lots of different plants that normally get established in lawns. None of it's uh, taken. I don't know why. So I've pretty much given up on the lawn <laughs> in, in all that respect. I've tried no mow may with my lawn. It just gets absolutely wild in there, but just grass. Some lawns, if you do no mow may and you just let it grow, will look stunning. There'll be loads of wildflowers in there. But I feel like my lawn has just been battered over the years, presumably by whoever lived here before, and there's just not a lot of diversity in it. That could change, and I could try and influence that a little bit more. There are lots of crocuses that I've planted, so at least in the spring, there is a bit of colour on my lawn. But generally, I don't do a lot of it for the wildlife. Now, you might be thinking, come on, Jack, bring your A-game. Well, that being said, I've got two large wildflower meadows. Um, one in my in my front garden, one in my back garden. So I do make the most of other spaces. Wildflower meadows are incredibly rewarding and you should definitely consider having one in your garden. They can be as easy or as complicated as you want to make them. I'm going to tell you a couple of ways that you can do a successful wildflower meadow. The first thing to realise is that grass is an absolute thug. Now that's not to say that you shouldn't have any grass in your garden, and indeed you will get grass in your meadow. And grass is important for biodiversity. You do want some grass in there, but it's important to have a variety of grasses, and ideally native. If you've just got a monoculture 
of cultured grass, they are going to be absolute thugs and kick the shit out of your wildflowers. So how do you beat the grass back? Well, what I did is a very, well, it's a, it's a quick way of getting your meadow started, but it's not an easy way. And that is I removed the top three inches of soil from the area I wanted to make a wildflower meadow. So this was when I was building my pond. So I hired a skip to put all the soil from the pond in. But I also thought, well, why I've got this, I might as well get rid of the lawn. So I got a patch that is, I'm just looking at my garden now, what would I say that is? Maybe th two by two meters, maybe something like that, maybe a little bit more. And I just took all that top layer of lawn. Oh, what was that? Uh, that was a frog, I think. Big frog jumped in my uh, pond. Oh, I didn't think we'd see any wildlife <laughs> while we were talking. That was definitely a frog. Um, anyway, getting distracted by frogs in my pond. Um, so I took all that soil away. I'm taking that top layer of soil away. You take away all the nutrients and you take away most of the grass. So that means that you're left with relatively nutrient poor soil with very little grass. This is what native wildflowers love because they're adapted to live in nutrient poor soil and they also do well with less competition from grass. So it meant that essentially I could crack on straight away. Now what if you don't have a skip or what if you don't have a means of getting rid of that uh, top layer of soil and the grass? There's a couple of other things you can do. One is absolutely beat the shit out of the grass. So what I would suggest you do is you mow the lawn where you want to have the wildflower meadow and the lowest setting possible. Mow it as low as you can. Then get a strimmer and go over that again. Absolutely kick the shit out of it. You've got to really, really beat that grass up. You've got to use and abuse it as much as you can to almost to the point where it's almost bare soil. That's what you want, because trust me, there will still be grass there, but you have to really fucking kick its head in, really go for it. Now, once you've got to that stage, then you can start putting in a yellow rattle, which if any of you, as soon as I said wildlife gardening, you all knew that yellow rattle is going to get mentioned at some point. Yellow rattle is a parasitic plant. And what happens is the seed of a yellow rattle attaches itself to grass and it leeches off the nutrients of that grass. It doesn't kill it, but it makes it less vigorous. This then means that surrounding plants like poppies, oxide daisy, knapweed, scabious, have all got a much better chance of coming up around the grass, whereas before they might have been bullied out by all that grass. So yellow rattle is crucial. I'm not saying you can't have a meadow without it, but it certainly bloody helps, particularly if the grass has been a bit of a thug. So once I've mowed the lawn, then I've uh, strimmed, the, strimmed whatever's left, I will scatter yellow rattle seed. After that, you then might want to put in various wildflower seeds, or if you're anything like me, I'm a little bit impatient, I'll plug in wildflowers as well. So I've got pots all over my garden where I'll be growing plants from seed, whether it's wild carrot, whether it is, uh, what else, some of my other favorites, purple loose drive, oxide daisy, as I mentioned, various poppies, lots and lots of different wildflowers I'll grow from seed. Red campion is one I haven't had in my meadow before. I've got a load of red campion growing um, this year. I've also got some devil's bit scabies. I've had field scabies in the past. I've never had devil's bit. So each year is different, and that's one of the joys of the meadow. Some years, one plant will go crazy. For example, the first year that I had my wildflower meadow, oxide daisy went nuts. 
and presumably there was the right amount of light, the right amount of nutrients or whatever for ox eye daisy to go nuts. The following year, the poppies went nuts and it must have been just the right amount of whatever for them. So the, the meadow's constantly evolving. If you think that having a wildflower meadow is just chucking seeds on your lawn and cracking on, you're in for a nasty shock, I'm afraid. There's a bit of work to it, but it doesn't have to be a lot of work. So all you do basically is once you've scattered those seeds, you put those plugs in, you let nature take its course. You let it grow out. So at the moment, my meadow's quite low. I will let that kind of go over the winter. I won't cut this until September next year, or maybe August, depends on the year that we've had. So rather than like a lawn, which you might be cutting once every few two or three weeks, a wildflower meadow, you only really need to cut once a year, maybe twice a year, that's it. So it is pretty labor in um, unintensive, is that a word? Let's go with that, let's say that's a word. What I tend to do is once the wildflowers are coming to the end, I collect as many seeds as possible. I get a big, big uh, paper bag, and sometimes I'll put seeds by species. I'll have bags labeled with poppy in that one, scabies in that one, whatever. And then I'll have a big lucky bag and I'll put everything in that one. And then I'll grow seeds and I'll give plants to friends and family because there's no, there's no more joy for me than seeing other people enjoy uh, wildflowers and whatnot. So uh, that's what at the minute, I've got loads and loads of pots and I'm giving them away. At the minute, I've got a shit ton of foxgloves. I've got lots and lots of foxgloves. I've grown them for the first time this year in a shady patch of my garden because foxgloves prefer shady areas and they did really, really well. And now I've got lots of little foxgloves popping up all over the garden, which I don't mind. They're, they're not a bad, um, a bad plant at all. So that's essentially the meadow. Um, there's another kind of cheat, actually. Before we move on to something else, I'll tell you another cheating method. So let's say that you've got grass, um, an area of grass that you want to turn into a meadow. You don't want to dig it out. Maybe you don't want to uh, scarify it or mow it either. The cheapest, easiest, least labor-intensive way, put sheets down. Get some tarpaulin, put a sheet down, put a few bricks to weigh it down, and then just leave it. So it's September now. I don't know when this podcast is going out, to be fair, but whenever this podcast goes out, just put a load of tarpaulin down on where you want this meadow to be and leave it. And I would say leave it for at least three months. At least. Longer if you can. The longer you leave it, the better the meadow will be. And what will happen is, because the light is blocked out below your tarpaulin, that grass will eventually die and disintegrate into the ground. You need to leave it for at least a couple of months, but I would say three or four would be ideal. Then all you need to do when the spring comes around, take the tarpaulin up, you'll have a nice patch of bare soil, plant your wildflowers, put your seeds in, they'll shoot straight up. There might be some residual grass seeds in there, but it's going to be nowhere near as bad as just putting it into the lawn. So that way, it might look a bit ugly during the winter, but we don't use our gardens as much in the winter. That's a really kind of cheap and easy way to do it as well. Just takes longer. So if, you've got, if you're not in a rush, I would say do it that way. Right, we've banged on enough about the wildflower meadow. Let's get on to ponds, because that's what we all want to talk about, ponds. I love me a pond. Uh, I've technically got six. Although, at the back I've got a reptile enclosure. I'm actually turning that into a veg patch now. Um, I'm trying to kind of make, make use of what space I've got. So I'm going to be losing uh, three of my ponds. But I've got a raised pond, and that's where I keep fish. So that's my back pond with the native hedgerow on it. Um, I just raised it up with sleepers. There's actually a video on YouTube if you want to watch me making that pond. If you go 
excuse me, if you go to Jack Perk's Wildlife Media, um, in fact, there's lots of garden videos on there. I did one on my Wildflower Meadow as well. So if you'd like to kind of actually see what my garden looks like, you can go onto YouTube and you can you can see it all on there. But you can check it out on there. I might put a link in the description as well. Um, I've got three sleepers high and then two foot deep. So that back pond's about four foot deep in the deepest bit. It's 2.2 metres by uh, 2.8, which makes me actually think that my garden's bigger than I realised then, because I, I think I said it was six by six. So yeah, my garden's bigger than that. Anyway, um, that's what I use for keeping native fish in there. And it means that if I ever need to photograph fish at short notice, I've got them to hand. So it is sort of a work expense, weirdly, but I've got native fish. That pond is teeming with wildlife. You know, people always say, you can't keep fish and wildlife together. I've got dragonflies in there. I've got water boatmen, pond skaters, newts. Everything uses that pond. And I've got loads of different fish in there. So I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the fact that you can't have fish and wildlife. I think it depends on the pond. If you've got plenty of hiding places for wildlife, they coexist fine. I've then got my wildlife pond, which isn't too far away. That's at ground level. And that is maybe a foot and a half deep in the, in the deepest bit. People get way too obsessed with digging deep ponds for wildlife ponds. But if you think about it, how cold does it get during a British winter that you get really, really thick frost? Now, at most, it's gonna be an inch or two. So as long as your pond is deeper than an inch or two, you'll be fine. Particularly if it's about a foot and a half, because then that's got residual heat that will stop it freezing solid. So you don't need to go crazy with a really, really deep bit in your pond. As long as you've got an area that's about a foot or so, you'll be absolutely fine. I've then got a marginal shelf, which is all the way around my pond, which is maybe three inches deep. And then beyond that, I've also got a one inch shelf and that's where I've placed a layer of sandstone. This is to hide my liner. One of my pet hates with garden ponds, and I apologize to any listeners who've got this, is when you've got liner poking out. I think it looks fucking awful. The idea is that you wanna make your pond, oh, a dragonfly. There's a dragonfly in my back pond. That is a common darter. It's just sitting in the sun on my <laughs> on my fish pond, weirdly enough. I'm spotting, I should really take the time to look at my garden, but it's not, this has given me a wonderful opportunity to just sit and watch my garden, which I don't typically do. Um, anyway, back to the wildlife pond. Yeah, I, I hate liner, it, it, it just looks horrible. So if you place a layer of sandstone on a small ledge around the edge of your pond, and then you took the liner behind that and into the soil, then another layer of sandstone, you've completely hidden the edges of your pond. What I then do is plug in bits of clay between those gaps and I plant marginal plants, things like marsh marigold, purple loosestrife, different kinds of reeds, um, water forget-me-not, lots of plants like that. And it looks fantastic. It looks absolutely brilliant. I have got a bit of a problem at the minute with grass getting in. Now, I mean, ultimately, it's not a huge problem, but it does mean that when it, when it really comes up, it does hide the pond a little bit. So I have tried to, to batter the grass around the edge of my pond Again, I'll probably use yellow rattle to do that. Um, I do have fish in my wildlife pond. I've got crusions, which are one of the few fish that you can keep in a wildlife pond, a dedicated wildlife pond, I should say, 
and they don't really cause any issues. So I've got my lovely little crusions. I don't see them very often, but they, they do breed and occasionally see them uh, spawning in around May time. My pond is maybe, oh, it's not a big wildlife pond. What would I say that is? A metre and a half by a metre and a half, maybe? One of the things with a wildlife pond, I would say, is go as big as you physically can. Because once you've dug a pond, it's very difficult to add on uh, mass to your pond to make it bigger, if you know what I mean. It's a lot of effort. So you're never going to regret having your pond too big. So make the pond as big as possible because the bigger the pond, the more biodiverse it is. Small ponds are great. And if that's all you can have, even if it's just a small uh, container with water in, that will help wildlife. But if you can have a big pond at ground level, you're going to get a lot more wildlife. Dragonflies prefer bigger ponds. Newts prefer bigger ponds. The bigger the pond, the better. When eventually, I suppose I do move from this house, if we get a big garden, I am going to go big or go home. I'm going to have an enormous pond. I really, really I want a pond that I can at least kick my feet in to get to the other side. If you know what I mean. Doesn't need to be. I don't want to be doing lengths. I mean, that's probably the dream. But a pond that's big enough that I could literally kick my legs and swim in it. That would be the plan. That's the sort of size that I would really, really like. Um, but a wildlife pond is useful. I've got some lilies in there as well. I've got various oxygenators. Um, when you're sourcing pond plants, I would always be very, very careful where you get them from. Garden centres are notorious for mislabeling plants and also hitchhikers, things like azola, uh, crassula that might come in. And once they get in your pond, it's fucked. My mum's got a, a garden pond, which actually I dug about 20 years ago. And it's a lovely little pond, but it is just choked with crassula, which is, I think it's New Zealand pennywort, I think is the common name, and um, and azola. So at some point I have told her that I'm going to start again. I'm going to empty that pond completely and start, because it's the only thing you can do. Once you've got a non-native plant in your garden pond, if it gets really well established, you ain't getting rid of it. You've got to start again. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to do that at some point point. Now what about homes for wildlife? I do have a hedgehog house. Now I think this was on a podcast we did with Hugh Warwick who's like Mr Hedgehog. This is an old older podcast that we did but the consensus is that hedgehogs don't generally live in purpose-built hedgehog houses but they will use them as sort of halfway houses so they might stop in it on the way to a more permanent place. If you want to provide a home for a hedgehog the best thing you can do is have a hedgerow with a big leaf pile, they'll love that, or potentially a compost heap. Although I'd be careful of a of a big open compost heap if you're going to use it for the garden, because you don't want to skewer a hedgehog. So I have a compost heap in my garden, but I actually only really use it for for the wildlife. I just put my kitchen cuttings in it, garden waste in it. I don't generally use compost in my garden because I've got so little uh, ornamental plants. But the wildlife loves it. I found newts hibernating in it. Uh, lots of invertebrates so a compost heap is good my compost heap's just made from pallets it's literally old pallets i've just chopped them up made a sort of rectangle shape um, and that's in the corner of my garden if i wanted to do compost properly i would have built a lid on top because then that heat would have really got the compost going but i've left it open because i want animals to get in i don't have a problem with rodents in my garden particularly because there are so many cats in the area. So I would say if you do live somewhere where there are a lot of rodents, you might not want an open compost heap if you're putting your kitchen waste in it because you might get 
um, lots and lots of rodents. That's not to say that rodents don't have a place in your back garden, but you personally might not want them in your own back garden. I have got a log pile, as I mentioned. So log piles are great. They're nice to kind of just chuck in the corner somewhere. They provide an area for various animals to hibernate. They're great for insects, frogs, reptiles, hedgehogs will use them. So it's well worth having a log pile. It is what it says on the tin. It's basically just a pile of logs. If you want to go one step further, one thing I would say is if you dig a hole, put the logs into that and pile them up, that just creates a bit of insulation for those animals that might hibernate. So digging into your log pile a little bit will uh, will help. If you hear pitter-pattering, it's because Pepper, my older sausage dog, is being a bit of a pain in the ass, and she keeps nudging my hand because she wants a fuss. You're a tart, aren't you? You're a tart dog. So a log pile is definitely worth having. I've got a hibernaculum, which is something I've specifically built for the reptiles and amphibians in my garden to hibernate in. And that's essentially, I've dug a foot down into the ground and I've put shredded up paper, I've put some wood chippings and I've then put loads of sticks and logs uh, into that. You don't want to cover it completely. You need to make sure there are some holes for animals to get into but you want the space to be relatively tight so that it holds moisture and warmth. I've put this right next to my pond and that's the perfect place for amphibians to hibernate. So a hibernaculum is a really good idea for your garden. I mentioned sandstone around the edge of my pond. I've also got rocks lined around my meadow. So there's loads of little nooks and crannies for little animals to hide in. And also around my compost heap, I've got lots of rocks. And the compost heap itself, as I said, will provide home for lots of things. So I've got lots of places for animals to hide in my garden. I think that's really important if you do have a high population of cats. I'm not going to bang on about cats today because I've done it far too often in this podcast. If you want to know about cats in gardens, go back and listen to some of the older episodes. That'll fill you in. I've also got a fringe of lavender in my back garden as well. I think lavender is a fantastic plant. Again, it's not necessarily native. I think there is a native strain of lavender, but it's drought resistant. So with the warmer summers that we're having, it's a good plant to have in your garden. And it flowers for a long time. And we're in September, what we are now, mid-September. It's still flowering and it's providing nectar for lots of invertebrates. One thing I didn't mention is on top of my uh, coal house, I've also got a green roof, which is basically where you have a very thin pot or, or a container, put it with a little bit of soil and then you put plants on it. So I originally started with things like sedum and alpine plants, but things have naturally colonised it from my meadow. So there's now uh, bird's foot tre- uh, trefoil, I think it's bird's foot trefoil it's called, uh, oxide daisy and other plants and I'm just going to leave it I, I don't really give a shit about that so whatever grows up there grows up there and it just means that one I haven't got to look at an ugly shed roof from my upstairs but it also insulates my coal house and it stops uh, damp getting in because I put a uh, tarpaulin below that so it's I did have a leak in there and that's completely stopped it so it's well worth thinking about having a green roof some people do it for where they keep their dustbins but any, any high space, you can have a green roof, basically, and that will just create another space for wildlife to go in there. I do have some pots in my garden. Uh, I've got lots of herbs and uh, stuff like that. What else have I got? There's some pots that fringe the pond. I did originally have um, ornamental plants in there. I can't remember the fucking name of what they were. They were purple. I don't know what they were, but 
Aubrecia, they were Aubrecia. So I had a load of Aubrecia in there, but they just never took. So this year what I've done is took the Aubrecia out and I think I'm gonna put some ornamental poppies in there. Uh, they look a bit like peonies, they're really, really pretty. So I'm gonna try and get them established and get them going in there. I think the key really is just to make the most of the space that you have. If you don't have a big garden, there are still things that you can do. So you can get preformed ponds which are tiny, you know, they're not not much bigger than a kitchen sink. That will be good. That will act as a sort of service station on the motorway for wildlife getting to other ponds. If you can't have a big wildflower meadow, just do a pot. Just have a little pot, sprinkle some seeds, see what comes up. Everything makes a difference. So do think about that sort of stuff that you can uh, that you can do. One of the things I really enjoy doing, I'm not sure if I should admit this, but I, I will admit it anyway, is I'll take the wildflower seed from my meadow and then I'll spread that around locally and it brings me an immense sense of joy when I'm walking past an area and I think oh that was just one species before and now there's multiple species and I'll give you two examples where I've done it and it's worked really well so on my local uh, field there was a big patch of ivy and, it, and when ivy gets old it bushes out the council removed all that ivy and that meant that there was maybe a two-metre border from where the field starts to the fence that was all bare earth. And the council didn't put any seeds down, nothing. And I thought, I'm fucking having that. So I, I got all the seeds that I'd collected all summer from my native wildflower patch. And I spread them all the way along this sort of um, stretch of bare soil. And then forgot about it. Didn't, didn't think anything of it. I thought, look, it's not cost me anything. If it works, it works, that'd be great. And then it was round about May, I took my dogs for a walk, I had a look, and I saw lots of little plants coming up. Some of them I recognised, some of them I didn't. I thought, oh, okay, well, that's not just grass. That looks interesting. A month or two later, I went back, and it was a wash of colour. And I was so overjoyed that it had worked. My little kind of crafty biodiversity plan had worked. And I could hear other dog walkers contemplating and going, oh, isn't that funny how the seeds are coming? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a mystery, isn't it? But I was chuffed to death. And I was also especially pleased that the council didn't just mow it down as, as they often do. They sort of left it as a, as a wildflower uh, border. And I'm hoping it will stay like that. Another example of that is that a pipe had to be dug up near where I live, just around the corner. So they had to dig up some grass, change the pipe, fill it back in with soil. So again, massive area of bare soil. And I was like, oh, okay, I know what's going to happen there. Got my wildflowers, seed, I've spread it out. This is a, a one I've only done recently, so I won't know if that's worked till next year, but I suspect it will. And I'm just increasing the biodiversity of my local area. So I was really happy to, to do that. I would say if you're going to do that, do make sure it's only native plants. Don't go seeding plants from other areas or particularly non-native ones. But if you know that plant is from the area, it's a great way to do it. And it also means I then have a seed bank in my local area. So if I want to collect more seeds, I can go there, I can collect some. If, if a plant doesn't do well in my own back garden, it might be hanging on there. So I've also kind of got like in reserve, if you like. But it did bring me a, a kind of bit of satisfaction that I've, I've done a little mini rewilding project. I dare say if I messaged the council and said, look, I'd like to do this, they'd probably let me do it anyway. But I just thought, fuck it, better to ask forgiveness than permission. So um, is it seek? What's the saying? Better to seek forgiveness than... Oh, I don't fucking know. You know what I mean. So I, I was pretty happy with that anyway.
I have got bat boxes on the side of my house as well. Um, they don't have to be high up. I would say if the higher the better, if you can get them like on the second story of your house or a good way up a tree, you'll probably find that bats are more likely to use them. And they generally like a clear flight path to it. So you wanna make sure they can get in nice and easy. But there are definitely bats that fly over my garden in the summer when I'm sat out there, I can see, I assume some sort of pipistrel um, mopping up invertebrates coming out of the pond, which is lovely to see. So a bat box is a great way to help and encourage those if you can. I've got bird boxes in my garden. They have never been used. I've been here three years. I've seen birds uh, prospect, like look at them, but they've never used them. So who knows? It can it can end up like that. I'm sure many of you listening have got bird boxes and then you've had them for a long time and then all of a sudden the birds decide to use them. So maybe next year the birds will do that. I have got some homemade uh, insect houses or bug hotels, whatever you want to call them. Now I, I've made a lot of effort into painting some, really making them look smart. And then I had a leftover one that looked really shabby. Guess which one the insects love? The shabby one, of course. All it is is a little wooden box with loads of little bamboo um, sticks. Oh, what was that? That was a weird noise, wasn't it? I think that might be my um, Alexa making a noise. Um, so yeah, that worked basically. So essentially, bug hotels are good. I think they are a little bit gimmicky. As long as you create habitat, the bugs will make the use of it. So I have got some big stumps in the garden. I've drilled holes in the stumps and the, the solitary wasp will, will certainly make good use of that. I think the key to wildlife gardening is just if you create a home, things will come in to fill that void. Just create lots of habitat. Try to create a myriad of habitats if you can. The more diversity you've got in the garden, the more likely you are to get things. But you can only build with the clay that you've got. If you are surrounded by just concrete and astroturf, even if your garden is an incredible habitat, you're not going to get as much as you would hope for. But if your neighbours have got lots of wild gardens and there's good connectivity between those gardens, you'll be amazed at what can turn up. So it's not too bad. My neighbours, I can't say that any of them are as keen as me on wildlife gardening, but they've all got lawns, they've all got trees. Connectivity is okay. It's not brilliant between the gardens, but it's not bad. Um, so things can get to and from. That's a key with hedgehogs, obviously. If you can create holes in the fence for hedgehogs. Where I live... We've seen eight hedgehogs ran over this year, which at first thought you think, oh, that's terrible. But it means there must be a healthy population of them in the area or you wouldn't get eight ran over. So that's the way I try and look at it as a positive. I've never seen a hedgehog in my back garden, although there is a big enough gap in the fence they could get in. But I have seen them near my front garden. So I know they're in the area and I do hope that one day I'll, uh, I'll see one in the back garden. The only thing I'm worried about is my dogs are... Um, bit stupid they wouldn't they wouldn't hurt it but they wouldn't leave it alone either so anyway I hope that's given you some ideas uh, for, for wildlife gardening and I've got sort of given you a bit of a, a virtual tour of my own garden um, it's something I really enjoy whenever I'm stressed out or I just need to take my mind off of whatever I'm doing just pottering around the garden for half an hour really recharges those batteries and it's something that I oh is that a frog bat I think that frog's come back. He's he's waving me goodbye. That's definitely a frog. Right, I'm going to go and have a look at this frog in the garden. So I'm going to leave you with that. But hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast. And I'll see you in the next one. Cheers. 
Hopefully that was vaguely helpful to, uh, to some of you and you get some tips for wildlife gardening. Now, if you want to watch these podcasts, you can on YouTube at Wildlife Exposed TV. When we record the interviews with people on Zoom, that all goes on to that YouTube channel and any extra bonus content that doesn't make it on the pod will also end up on there. So it's well worth checking that out. If you want to see the stuff that I create on YouTube, you can at Chat Perks Wildlife Media. There are vlogs about fishing, wildlife photography, wildlife clips, all kinds of great content on there. If you can subscribe to that, that would mean the absolute world to me. And as always, if you can leave a review, we're desperate for reviews. It will take you a couple of minutes. I want you to pause this podcast, head on to Google or whatever thing you're using, chuck us a review. It means the world and it pushes us up in the SEO. So more reviews would be greatly appreciated. New podcasts come out every Tuesday and next Tuesday, I'll be heading to Romney Marsh in Kent in search of Europe's largest frog, the marsh frog. I wanted to try and find an animal that was very audible. Marsh frogs are definitely audible. So it's going to be in for a treat as I romp around Romney Marsh looking for these incredibly iconic frogs. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Chat Perks, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Cheers.